Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 22. If you were here before worship, I read it. So uh, many of you, many of you probably know about it. It's the story of of how Abraham was told to offer Isaac, his son, on an altar. And you know, um, when I was growing up, um, I had uh, this LP and. For well, most there's a lot of older people here, so you know what I'm talking about. A record album, and uh, it was Bible stories. And one of the stories that was dramatized was this story that we read this morning. And you know, to be honest with you, it freaked me out as a kid. I mean, it was like I was I, every time I read it, I was just like, I can't imagine. It was just it was just frightening as a kid listening to that. I can't picture a loving God commanding someone to offer his son on an altar. Can you imagine that? It just, it blows my mind. And then a loving father being willing to actually go through with a command like that. It's just, it's just, it boggles the mind. And then, you know, and so I'm listening to this story as a little kid. And I'm like, man, I hope God doesn't tell this to my dad, you know, and stuff. And, and then in the nick of time, you know, just as he's ready to sacrifice his son, in the nick of time, God says, stop, stop. Now I know that you love me. You know, and to me, it's like, wait a minute. Did God have to do that? I mean, we know from the Bible that the, the Bible says that God's omniscient, right? That means he's all-knowing. So, so God knows already uh, Abraham's heart. Why would God need to test Abraham this way? And if you've got a, a King, New King James, which is what I read from, it says that God tested Abraham. Well, that word test, what does it mean? Well, it can mean, and I think in this case it does mean, to prove. Um, it's not like God needed Abraham to prove to God his love, because God does know already. But it's like, if you can imagine what a proving ground is, and I don't know if you know what a proving ground is, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, like a parade field. It's somewhere where, you know, you've got this product. Say you've developed this product, and you know that it can, it can do all kinds of neat things, but now you want to reveal it. You want to prove the quality. You want to reveal the quality of your design. So you bring it out to this proving ground, and you run it through its paces just to see, man, it can really do what I've designed it to do. And, and that's kind of, in a sense, what God is doing here with Abraham. Faith must be proved. And you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, it's interesting because there's two places in the New Testament that talk about this event. And they talk about it from two different ways, which is kind of interesting. But Paul, you know, Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Romans on Wednesday nights at our potlucks and uh, Bible studies. And in Romans chapter 4, we already went over this scripture, but in Romans 4, Paul's talking about the faith of Abraham. And he says this, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. I mean, you don't go to your, you know, you, you work all week, and you go to your boss, and you don't say, uh, could you please, you know, bless me with a, with a paycheck? No, you say, I earned it, right? I, I, I deserve it. You know, if you work, if you earn wages, that's a debt. But listen, he continues, he says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And what Paul's talking about is, you know, we don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to earn righteousness. It's, 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 we receive it by faith. 
just as Abraham, he believed God's promise that Abraham would receive us, that Sarah and him would have a son named Isaac. He believed God, and the scripture says that when he believed him, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's one place in the Bible that talks about this. Another place is the apostle James in his letter. James is one of the brothers of the Lord. James 2 verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Wait a minute. Paul's talking about faith. James is talking about works. Well, James continues, says, Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. It almost sounds contradictory, doesn't it? One's talking about faith, one's talking about works and faith. What's the deal here? Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I, I've read this verse over and over again, but it just, it just jumped out at me yesterday as I was ref- reflecting on this. It says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, when Abraham, when God made the promise of Isaac to Abraham, Abraham believed God. And at that moment, the Bible says it was accounted to him for righteousness. But later on, when Isaac, when Abraham's told to offer Isaac on the altar and Abraham obeys, then the scripture was fulfilled. In other words, to carry into effect or to bring to realization, to realize of sayings, promises, prophecies, to bring the past, to ratify or to accomplish. What am I saying? Well, Abraham had faith in God's promise. He was declared righteous for his faith. But it ratified that faith when it was tested. It brought to the realization. Listen, if you truly believe in something, it's going to affect how you respond to something. For example, all of you came into this room and you sat down on these chairs. Now, you assumed you had faith that this chair, these chairs are going to support your weight, right? You, you, like they look like they're pretty sturdy chairs. I mean, we had some pretty rickety chairs before, but God blessed us with these. So, you know, but you look at these chairs and go, I believe that this chair can support me, so therefore, I'm going to sit down in them. Now, if you didn't really believe that that chair, if you looked at that chair and go, man, I just don't know. It looks pretty weak. It looks rickety. You wouldn't sit down, right? Because you didn't believe that it would support you. But that's what faith is. Faith is, you know, how you and I respond to a trial uh, of our faith reveals a lot about our faith. Abraham's going to go through an incredible trial, but it's going to reveal that faith that he has. The trial of his faith is going to prove its genuineness. And Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1.6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't like trials. I really don't like having my faith tested, especially if it's a difficult thing. You know, it's, I mean, who wants to go through a difficult thing where it's like, okay, Lord, I'm helpless. I have to rely on you. I mean, it's not that fun for us, but it's necessary for us. And it proves our faith. It increases our faith, actually. And so going back to the story, the, God gives this command from the Lord. He says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. It's interesting when God says it. He says, your son, your only son, the son whom you love. This is the one I want you to offer. You see, God understands the cost of this trial. God understands what's going on. In fact, as I read that, it should remind us of another son. In John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish of everlasting life. God understands the trial that Abraham's going through completely. In verse 2 there, this is the first mention in the Bible of the word love. And uh, in, it's interesting because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, the first time the Father's love is, that's mentioned in the Bible, it's in reference to Christ at his baptism. You guys know it. It says, that when, the, when the voice came from heaven, said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So one thing I want to mention, and you know, we, we talked about Isaac's birth last week. Um, or maybe it was the week before, but Isaac's birth is a picture of Jesus Christ. There are, as you go through the Old Testament, there's a lot of pictures and things, and you go, why is that in there? Well, it's symbolic. It's to, it's to, it's to point the way. It's to reveal Jesus Christ. Um, God was preparing the Jewish people to receive a Savior, their, the Messiah, their Savior. He was preparing them through all the sacrifices and all the things, showing them their need for a Savior. And Isaac is a picture in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Both Isaac and Jesus were promised beforehand. Both of them were promised before they were even born. Both were born after a delay but at the father's set time. In Isaac, you know, uh, talk about a delay. Abraham and Sarah were well advanced in years. I mean, they were beyond childbearing. Sarah was beyond childbearing age, and that's when, at the set time, that Isaac was born. Jesus, I mean, the disciples, or not the disciples, but the prophets, you know, they waited for centuries for the coming promised Messiah. And the Bible says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. They were just at the right time. Both mothers were assured of God's power. The angel of the Lord told Sarah, hey, is anything too hard for the Lord? I don't think he said hey, but is anything too hard for the Lord? And Mary, Gabriel told Mary, with with God, nothing is impossible. Both of them were given names in advance of their birth that had very much, you know, had deep meaning to them. Both bird, uh, both birds, both births, excuse me, were miraculous. Um, I got to watch myself here. Um, you know, considering Sarah was well past childbearing years, it was a miracle that she had a baby like at that time. And of course, we know the story that Mary was a virgin. So both births were miraculous in one sense or the other. Both births were accompanied with joy. Remember, Isaac's name means laughter, and, and, and Sarah and, and, and Abraham, they were just filled with joy at the birth of, of Isaac. And Jesus's, I mean, it was glad time. Remember, the angels announced glad tidings of great joy, joy to the world. We sing that at Christmas time. So as Isaac's birth is a picture of Christ's birth, this event that we're going to look at this morning is also a picture of Christ's death. And we'll discover that as we go through this passage of Scripture. So verse 3. So Abraham receives the command, offer up your son, your only son whom you love. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, 
and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, for you parents, and even if you're not a parent, just put yourself in Abraham's place. Just, just imagine, how would you respond to a command like that? I don't know about you, but I mean, I'd be depressed. I, I wouldn't want to get out of bed. I'd be like, uh, you know, you know, you know when, when people get depressed, sometimes they just stay in bed and stuff. Abraham rose early in the morning. Now, I am imagining he probably didn't sleep much that night. In fact, I, I, did, I doubt he slept at all. I bet you that it was just turning over and over in his heart and his mind and just, you know, how could you sleep when you have this, something like this kind of a burden? And so he rose up early in the morning and it says that he split wood for the burnt offering. What's the burnt offering? Well, if you're not familiar with it, what they would do is they would take the sacrificial animal, they would bind it up, the animal's throat would be slashed so that the animal uh, bled to death and then the animal would be cut up. The pieces would be arranged in quarters carefully on the altar. And all of the animal would be completely burned to ashes. It was completely devoted to the Lord. That was what the burnt offering was. The process would be deliberate. It'd be somber. And it would be in an attitude of worship. This is what the Lord is commanding Abraham to do with his son. Now listen, we know from the passage that we've been studying about Abraham, he was very wealthy. He had lots of servants. He had all kinds of hired help, all kinds of people around him. Abraham could have easily had his servants chop up the wood, load up the donkey, get everything ready to go. But listen, this is something Abraham has to do himself in solitude. I mean, just just put yourself in Abraham's mind there, or in his place there. And so Abraham gets up early in the morning. He sets about preparing for the journey in total obedience. What about Sarah? What about Sarah? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us anything. Sarah's not in this story here. This is my guess. My guess is he probably didn't say anything to Sarah. I mean, he probably told him he was, you know, the Lord told me to go. But I don't think he would have revealed exactly what God had said. Now, maybe he did, but we don't know. But I'm imagining he probably didn't tell Sarah it appears from the story he didn't tell the two men that accompanied him, and he certainly didn't tell Isaac what was going on. This is a burden that Abraham had to carry alone by himself. What was on Abraham's heart and mind, do you think? Well, obviously his great love for Isaac. But undoubtedly he's also thinking back about God's promise, right? God's promise in, 12, uh, in chapter 21, verse 12, In Isaac your, your seed shall be called. And yet Isaac hadn't had any children yet. You see, Abraham trusted in the promise of God. In fact, that's why it was reckoned to him for righteousness. But he trusted more in the God of promise than in the promise itself. How do I know that? Well, because in Hebrews eleven seventeen it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Listen to what it says. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. God, Abraham knew the promise of God. He believed the promise of God. It was reckoned him for righteousness. And now God tells him, I want you to offer up that son, that son that's supposed to be, you know, all your descendants are supposed to come from this son. 
And God says, you know what? Or Abraham's like, I trust you, God. And I don't know how you're going to work it out. You know, I'm going to be killing my son. You're, probably, you're going to raise him from the dead because you've given me this promise. He was trusting in the God of promise more than the promise itself. So now you can imagine. Now they're heading out on this, this journey for two days. Two days they're journeying to this destination. And I can imagine Abraham, man, he's in agony. Just, you know, every step is probably a very difficult step to take. And yet, in resolute determination to obey, trusting in the God of promise. Two days. Three days. Verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Three days of obedience, traveling there, taking Isaac and those two young men with them. Three days, you know, every day. Can you imagine every day morning getting up? It's like, okay, I'm I'm getting closer and closer. You know, three days of obedience, three days of considering Isaac as good as dead. Why do you say that? Well, because he was obeying God. He he brought the stuff for the sacrifice. He was going to do it. So in his mind, Abraham was already a dead man in his mind. You know, here we see a picture of Christ. Jesus was crucified and laid in a tomb for three days. So as we go through this, it's going to be like, man, it seems so familiar to the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Well, it is, and it's for a purpose. So Abraham, he's traveling. On the third day, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place afar off, the hills of Moriah. You know, the hills of Moriah, we know where that is today. In fact, today, if that area was on the real estate market... Did you know that that would be the hottest piece of property in the world? It would be the most sought-after piece of property in the world. In fact, it's, it won't be on the market. Why? Because it's priceless. It's priceless. You could not offer the possessors of that property any amount of money, and they'd be willing to give it to you. They would not be willing to relinquish possession of that. It's such an important piece of property. It's also a source of conflict and tension between groups of people. What is this place? The Hills of Moriah is Jerusalem. It's modern-day Jerusalem. And specifically, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is one of the hills of Moriah. It's like a little, it's like a little uh, ridge, and there's a couple little hills, like knolls in different places. One of them is the Temple Mount. The other one is Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified. And this is where God led Abraham to, this very place. Verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and the lad. Uh, excuse me. Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So he didn't even tell the young men what he had planned to do. But by faith, he proclaimed. Now, I don't think he was lying, but by faith, he proclaimed they would both return to the young men because he's figuring, you know, God's going to raise him from the dead. I mean, he made this promise. He keeps his promises. I'm trusting him. And so the father and the son, they head up alone together uphill because it's going uphill towards Jerusalem. You know, when Jesus died on that same hill 2,000 years later, the sheep, his disciples, had been scattered from their shepherd. Jesus prophesied that that would happen, and it did. 
Now, there were people all around Jesus when he was being crucified, right? He had a thief on one side and a thief on the other side. There were women that were around the, the, the cross as he was being crucified. There was the, the, uh, the Roman guards were there. Apostle John was there for a while. But in reality, so he had people around him. But in reality, it was just the Father and the Son going through this together. Just the Father and the Son. And so just Abraham and his son, they're going up to this place of sacrifice. Verse 6, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. The wood, the chopped up split wood that would be used for the burnt offering was laid on Isaac's back, and he carried it to the place of sacrifice. When Jesus was crucified, they placed the cross of wood on his back, and he carried it to his place, to the place of sacrifice, to the place of crucifixion. Now, can you imagine in this scene, father and son heading up there? The son doesn't know what's going on at this point, I don't think. But the father certainly does. And as they head up together, I can imagine there's just this silence. It's not small talk. I think it's just silence. Each step, it's more laborious. Is that the right way? Laborious? Laborious? Whatever. It's harder than the next step, right? Of course, they're going uphill, but just that, realizing we're getting closer and closer and closer to that moment that defining moment. Each step is getting harder and harder. And Abraham, he's silently contemplating what he is being called to do. Just think about it. He's being called to kill by his own son, or excuse me, kill by his own hand the son that he loves. Just, just, put your, just wrap, try to wrap your mind around that. Isaac, you know, he's silently thinking, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> There's something wrong with this picture. Obviously, I mean, Dad's upset about something. He's not saints, but wait a minute. Something's missing. And sure enough, finally, his curiosity is too much. Look at verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now Abraham was speaking prophetically of not only what would happen a few verses later, right? Because we'll read later that there was a ram caught in the thicket that was a substitute instead of Isaac. But he's also speaking prophetically about 2,000 years later, the heavenly father would provide himself for a burnt offering, for a sacrifice. And as Isaac Isaac asked that most important question of history, where is the lamb for burnt offering? 2,000 years later, after that many years, John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching. He says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That question was answered 2,000 years later. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, if you grew up like I grew up going to church, I grew up going to church, and you went to Sunday school, I want to tell you something. Forget your flannel graphs, okay? Anybody know what a flannel graph is? Okay. Oh, there's a few people that know what a flannel graph I know what a flannel graph is because, you know, every Sunday they would tell a Bible story, and it was, a, it was like this, this board made out of flannel, and they'd have these little 
paper things that they would sit, you know, they tell the story and they place the paper on the on the flannel, it wouldn't fall off, and they, they could do it was really cool, they could do Bible stories, you know. Nowadays they have the videos and everything, but back then we had flannel graphs and paper. Well, forget the flannel graphs that you saw as a kid about this story. While I was working a couple evenings ago, I thought, you know what, I want to just listen to the scripture. So I was listening to different versions on my, on my, uh, my uh, Bible app that I have as I was working, my headphones on and stuff. And, and I thought, you know, I want to listen to a couple of the dramatized, because they have narrated Bibles. Some of them are just, they just reading the Bible. Others are narrated, where you have kind of the, it's like you're listening to a radio program or something. Forget about the dramatized radio versions of the Bible, or the audio versions of the Bible. Listen, Isaac is not a pre-puberty uh, young boy with a shrill voice. That's the conception. I mean, in Sunday school, there was a little, little guy, you know, they place him on the altar and stuff. Forget about it. That's not the case. Um, in verse 5, the young men that is described there in verse 5, that's a Hebrew word, it's nayar. It's the exact same word in verse 5 that Abraham describes Isaac, the lad. It's the exact same word, nayar. What is a nayar? A nayar refers to a young man old enough to serve in battle. Old enough to serve in battle, or whatever age that is. It's not a child. In fact, in Joshua, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, Joshua is described there as a nayar, a young man. You know what John Gill, he's one of the commentators, he says at the time that this is said, Exodus 33, verse 11, Joshua was 56 years old, and he's called a Nayar, a young man. Now, if you're 100, anyone, you know, 50 years, is, is they're, just, they're just a kid, right, 50 years later, or 50 years earlier. Josephus, the historian, says that Isaac was 25 years old. But interestingly, the Hebrew commentators, they say, Isaac was in his 30s. And that fascinates me. Because in the very next chapter, if you hear next week, you'll hear about it. In the very next chapter, Sarah's going to die. And the Bible says that she was 127 years old when she died. We know from scriptures that Abraham was 10 years older than, than uh, Sarah. So when Sarah dies, Abraham's 137 years old. That's just the next chapter. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. So it's entirely conceivable that Isaac was, in fact, in his 30s, as the Jewish commentators suggest. And you know what I think? And this is just my thinking. I wouldn't be surprised at all if Isaac was 33 years old, the same age Jesus Christ was when he died on the cross. Because it just makes sense with the picture, as, as God's painting this picture for the Jewish people about their Messiah that would one day come and die on the cross for their sins. Now, besides that being an interesting piece of trivia, it's like, oh, now I know something new. That's awesome. Um, you can impress your friends now with some trivia. But besides being an interesting piece of trivia, I want you to think about that. If he is, in fact, in his 30s or in his 20s or whatever age he is, he's, he's not a child. He's not, he's not 12 years old or whatever the pictures were, an 8-year-old boy or anything like that. He's a young man at this point. And as Isaac... You know, at this point, Abraham starts to bind Isaac, you know, tie his hands. Um, and he's undoubtedly speaking to Isaac. I think at this point, he's explaining what's going on, what God told him. And I think Isaac now understands who the sacrificial is, animal is. It's him. And I think, Isaac, you know, Abraham's revealing that. Listen, Isaac was old enough to understand, because the pagans all did sacrifices around him. He was old enough to understand what was about to take place. And he was also strong enough to 
to overpower Abraham, who was well into his hundreds by this time. What does that mean? That means that Isaac willingly obeyed his father in this sacrifice. That blows my mind, too. It's hard to imagine. Isaac willingly submitted himself to his father Abraham in total obedience. Listen to this other son, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In John chapter 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy that was set before Jesus, he, despised, he, he endured the cross. What was the joy? Well, it certainly wasn't the joy of the crucifixion. The joy was setting you and I free from the bondage of sin and death. The joy of setting you and I free. That's what enabled him. The love, the great love that he had for us enabled him to do what he did, dying on the cross. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever read Matthew Henry. He's a commentator. Um, I want to read this. It's a little bit lengthy. But man, I tell you, as I read this, it's like, wow, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Because he does such a good job of, of how he imagines Abraham is, is just going through these steps as they're about ready to, he's about ready to offer his son as a, as a sacrifice on the altar. So I want you to just listen to this. He says, With the same resolution and composedness of mind, after many thoughts of heart, he applies himself to the completing of this sacrifice. He goes on with a holy willfulness. After many a weary step and with a heavy heart, he arrives at length at the fatal place, builds the altar, an altar of earth, we may suppose, the saddest that he ever had built, and he had built many a a one. Lays the wood in order for for his Isaac's funeral pile, and now tells him the amazing news, Isaac, thou art the lamb which God has provided. Isaac, for aught that it appears, is as willing as Abraham. We do not find that he raised any objection against it, that he petitioned for his life, that he attempted to make his escape, much less that he struggled with his aged father or made any resistance. Abraham does it, God will have it done, and Isaac has learnt to submit to both, Abraham no doubt comforting him with the same hopes with which he himself by faith was comforted. Yet it is necessary that a sacrifice be bound. The great sacrifice, which in the fullness of time was to be offered up, must be bound, and therefore so must Isaac. But with what heart could tender Abraham tie those guiltless hands, which perhaps had often been lifted up to ask his blessing and stretched out to embrace him? And we're now the more straightly bound with the cords of love and duty. However, it must be done. Having bound him, he lays him upon the altar and his hand upon the head of the sacrifice. And now we may suppose with floods of tears, he gives and takes the final farewell of a parting kiss. Perhaps he takes another for Sarah from her dying son. 
This being done, he resolutely forgets the bowels of a father and puts on the awful gravity of a sacrificer. With a fixed heart and an eye lifted up to heaven, he takes the knife and stretches out his hand to give a fatal cut to Isaac's throat. Verse 10 in Genesis 22. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You know, as Matthew Henry described, and I I had a hard time going through that reading. It was just hard. But as Matthew Henry described just that solemnness of that occasion, such a holy moment where faith is put to the ultimate test. And there at the last moment, the Lord God tells Abraham, stop, don't kill your son. Can you imagine the amazing joy that flooded through Abraham's heart and obviously Isaac's at that same moment? And yet, you know, on that same hill 2,000 years later, another father would not stop sacrificing his son on the cross, allowing his son to be to die for, as an offering for sin. You know, what impacted me, of course, you know, the kiss from my Abraham to his son, and I, I just pictured that. You know, my father, he, was, he grew up uh, in the Netherlands during World War II, and, and uh, you know, he was that, with, you know, uh, with that one media guy, the one news guy, I forgot his name, calls it the greatest generation, right? That generation that grew up during World War II and all that. And thing about that generation, they weren't very emotional, the guys, right? Men weren't, weren't generally speaking, men were not that, that emotional. You know, I remember growing up, you know, I remember as a kid, my dad would be really, you know, emotional, but, but growing up, you know, as a teen and stuff, you know, I probably, I probably had BO and stuff anyways, but, you know, <laughs> give you a hug and it'd be this little pat like that, hey, good going. You know, that's about as, as emotional as it get, you know. Um, but, you know, when my dad realized that his life was just about over, he started getting very emotional. He'd always tell me, I love you. He never said that when he was growing up. I love you. You know, I talked to him, I love you. I love you too, Dad, you know. And the last time I remember he gave me a, a, a kiss. You know, the last time I saw him, I knew he was dying in just a few days, and I had to go back to Minnesota. He was in California. And, and I'll never forget that kiss because it was such a tender thing. I mean, it's, it's it, between a father and a son, just, just a, something I'll never forget. Abraham probably carefully and gently tied Isaac's hands. It wasn't like violent thing. It was just, you know, I'm sure it was just as tender as could be. And he's probably speaking calm words to Isaac and comforting him, and tears are just flooding down for Isaac. But you know, Jesus, the Son of God, there was no, sacri- there was no such tenderness that night when he was crucified. The hatred of evil and hell was unleashed on Jesus And the son, as the heavenly father is watching, he was mistreated with ruthless cruelty. There was no such tenderness when he died on the cross. Verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered up for a burnt offering instead of his son. 2,000 years later, there wouldn't be a ram caught in the thicket on that same hill on Calvary. There was no other sacrifice that could take the place of the son who would die on Calvary. There's no other sacrifice that could take the place for you and me. 
You know, sometimes, look, they talk about God and they accuse God of withholding from them. You know, God's kept this from me. You know, he doesn't love me. He's, you know, all these things. Listen, the father loved you and I so much, he didn't withhold his only begotten son, whom he loved from us. That's how much he loves you. The Bible says, as I shared with the kids, there's no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends. You know, people say, well, God doesn't love me. And, you know, listen, what, what more, how more could God prove his love to you than to allow his son to die for you? I mean, it just boggles. There's, there's no greater love than that a father would offer his son for, his, for somebody. And not even for his friends, for his enemies. There is no greater love. What greater love could God do to prove to you that he loves you this morning? There is no greater love other than Jesus Christ. And for those that think that maybe God's withheld something from you, you know, it's true. God has withheld something from you. He's withheld having to endure eternal damnation separated from him for eternity. That's what he's withheld from us. Verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So Abraham, of course, you know, this is a very special place now. He names the place the Lord will provide. You know, he didn't call it Hamburger Hill. (laughs) He didn't call it, you know, the Mount of Agony or the greatest sacrifice, the biggest thing I had to go through in my life, man, the trial. It wasn't about Abraham at all. He named it Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide himself for, a, for a, a, a lamb for the burnt offering on this very same hill 2,000 years later. You know, Jesus, when he's talking to the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and they're, they're, you know, they're trying to lay a trap for him and they, they just can't stand him and everything, he says this at one point. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. I wonder if this is what he's talking about. Abraham at that point understands that, you know, it's just been a picture. I think maybe the Spirit revealed it to him that that it's just been a picture of what the Heavenly Father would do one day when he allowed his son to die on a cross for us. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You know, people always swear by something greater than themselves, right? If you take an oath, you take, you put, place your hands on a Bible, right? That's, this means like I've really, I'm, I'm telling the truth, or I swear over my mother's grave. You, listen, the Bible says there's no, there's no one greater than God. So, you know, God can't swear by anyone greater than himself, so he swears by, him, by himself. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to multiply you. Because of Abraham's great faith, his offspring would be blessed. You know, maybe the Lord's calling you right now to go through some trial. He's allowed you to go through some trial, and it's been a trial of your faith. It's been a real test. Listen, going through it, man, just think of the blessings, not just for yourself, but those around you by just going through it and being faithful. Now, the nation of Israel assumed it was only them by virtue of being physically descended from Abraham that the blessing applied to. But listen, 
Paul says it great, and we'll get to that when we're in Romans here shortly, uh, I think next, this week actually. It's those who are the faith of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile alike, who put their trust in the God of promise who are going to be blessed. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning for the sacrifice that he gave for you 2,000 years ago, you are receiving that blessing. You're, of, of, you're one of the children of Abraham by faith. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Such an amazing story this morning. I want to read, I want to just close this morning with Isaiah chapter 53, and I'm just going to read it. You can follow along if you want, but uh, just think about this. As we've been thinking about, you know, Isaac, the sacrifice that, you know, Abraham didn't actually follow through, right? He didn't, but he was willing to, and God... God blessed him because he was willing to. The, the only thing that stopped him was God himself from, from actually following through and being faithful to that command. Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For she, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him, or divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. Won't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Fathers, we just reflected on this very pivotal time in the life of Abraham and Isaac. Lord, just to understand, looking, we have the, the luxury of, of looking back at it and then looking at your crucifixion and seeing the correlation. But for Abraham, he didn't have such that luxury. He just had to do it by faith and to trust you. And yet, Lord, through this entire thing, you were painting a picture of the lamb that you would offer 
to pay the price for our sins, to die on the cross for us. Lord, you've proven your love. There's no greater love than that you offered your son. Lord, you've not withheld anything from us, Lord. You gave the greatest gift that you could ever, that anyone could ever give. And Lord, I pray for each person here this morning. Lord, I don't know their hearts, but I pray, Lord, that they would recognize, if not before, that they would recognize right now that you love them. Lord, that there was no other substitute for, for our sins. Lord, it was necessary that an innocent victim be sacrificed. And Lord Jesus, you lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. And you died on the cross for sins instead of us. And Lord, you were dead for three days, but you rose again from the dead. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not have a relationship with you, that even this morning, Lord, they might cry out to you, repent of their sins and put their trust in you for their salvation. So Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. Pray your blessing on each and every person here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.